0: Welcome to Beyond Your Newsfeed: Understanding Contemporary Politics, a podcast of the Political Science Department of Providence College. My name is William Hudson, chair of the Providence College Political Science Department and host of this podcast. All the views you hear on this podcast are mine and those of my guests. For this first Beyond Your Newsfeed Feed uh, episode of 2019, I've invited my colleague, Professor Susan McCarthy, the political science department's East Asia specialist to enlighten us on contemporary Chinese politics and that country's significant relationship with the United States. Dr. McCarthy's scholarship on China dates to her graduate work at the University of California, Berkeley, where she earned her PhD. She is the author of Communist Multiculturalism, Ethnic Revival in Southwest China, published by the University of Washington Press in 2009. More recently, Dr. McCarthy's work has focused on the politics of religion and religious religious groups in today's China, a fascinating subject about which I'm going to ask her about later in the podcast. Susan has been on the faculty of Providence College since 2000 and has served the college in a multitude of ways, particularly as political science department chair from 2011 to 2013. Susan, welcome to Beyond Your Newsfeed, and thanks for being with us.
1: Well, thank you for having me. Very happy to be here.
0: Uh, to start us off, Susan, I'd like you to explain to us the remarkable rise of China <coughs> under an avowedly communist government into a major power in the global capitalist economy. Uh, back a long time ago, when I was a student in the 1960s, uh, the image we had of China was a radical communist regime under the uh, harsh control of Mao Zedong, who was unremittingly hostile to the United States and to capitalism. News reports at the time featured gangs of red guards running through the streets, waving copies of Mao's Little Red Book. At that time, I could not have imagined that one day, China would be one of America's major trading partners, manufacturing many of the products sold in this country, including that Apple iPhone in my pocket today.
1: What happened? Well, what happened is Mao died uh, in 1976. And then a couple of years later, uh, Deng Xiaoping, who is one of the original you know, revolutionaries, founders of the People's Republic of China, Deng became China's leader. Uh, Deng Xiaoping put in place a series of economic reforms that started China along the path to becoming a fairly capitalist economy, though not a free market one. Uh, These reforms have really profoundly transformed Chinese society. Uh, Among the most successful of Deng's early reforms were um, some of those in agriculture. So under Mao, land was controlled by rural collectives. Uh, Basically, villages controlled uh, decisions, villages and communes controlled decisions about farming. And farmers uh, labored as part of production teams getting work points in return for their labor. Um, Under dung, land was contracted to individual households, and these households were allowed to sell part of what they produced at market for a profit. Uh, many people have lost out during this transition over many decades, but the policies of Deng and his successors have, have lifted over half a billion people out of extreme poverty, and many of these people um, were in the countryside. Uh, so, China's reforms, uh, you know, this goes to the, the issue of the iPhone. China's reforms have also meant opening up to foreign investment to foreign firms and to the growth of a private sector. The private sector basically did not exist in 1978 when uh, reform started, Um, and China exported almost nothing, which is pretty amazing when you think about today. Um, The huge contrast with the Mao era also shows that the the Chinese Communist Party, the, the CCP, has relaxed its grip over a lot of social and cultural life, although definitely not entirely.
0: So, so do you think, I mean, nowadays China is an economic powerhouse, a major industrial manufacturer. You mentioned that this started in agriculture. Do you think Deng envisioned uh, what China is like today? Was that part of a plan, or, or do you think China's kind of uh, evolved in ways that maybe even the Communist Party leadership uh, couldn't have uh, guessed or imagined?
1: I, I definitely don't think they imagined you know where they would be t- where china would be today um but officially, according to the party state, uh, to China, you know, according to China's leaders, China today is not a quote-unquote capitalist economy, <clears throat> not even a state capitalist economy. Again, that's the official line, and there's, there's actually criticism of the use of the term state capitalism. Uh, instead, China practices what its leaders call quote-unquote socialism with Chinese characteristics, Um, And that's, again, the official line. And it's true that most of the growth since the early 1980s has occurred in the private sector. But China's state sector, the the state-owned firms, uh, remains really large. And state-owned firms have still a a privileged place in the economy in terms of access to credit, to capital, to other resources. Um, Over the last 10 years, China's state sector has actually increased in size relative to the rest of the economy uh, and also increase in dominance in certain industries. Um, this is partly related to the 2008 global financial crisis that China was much less than, affected than other countries like the U.S. by the, uh, the global credit crisis. Uh, and partly that was because of the somewhat closed and state dominated economy. Um, which really protected it from deleveraging that was happening around the globe. And so this has really reinforced the leader's view that this large state sector and a partly managed economy is necessary for stability and for Communist Party rule. Um, And I think it's also important to note that even leaders who pushed hard for market reforms, including Deng Xiaoping, never saw capitalism as their goal. Uh, the Chinese Communist Party claims that what it's doing is building up what Marxists call the productive forces, and that someday in the future, China will attain true communism. Um, despite all this, the private sector is huge, it's dynamic, uh, and also much of the economy is really poorly regulated. So, the lack of regulation, lack of enforcement, makes ch- some some areas of the economy seem like a kind of a paragon of untrammeled free market capitalism. And a libertarian dystopia, which are kind of the same thing, really. So uh,
0: a, cap, a um, market sided with socialist with socialist characteristics. Uh, you seem to say it's primarily the existence of this large state sector that that defines that. But uh, it, it's really interesting that uh, the the market sector has this sort of libertarian aspect uh, that uh, seems very uh, contradictory. Uh, how, how do they manage that contradiction politically? I would think that would cause some some tension uh, among both political elites but also ordinary people uh, to try to figure out exactly, you know, how do I fit in here? What's going on?
1: Well, that's where the Communist Party plays a role. Um, in the last sort of fifteen years or so, the the Communist Party leaders have have became really concerned that there was a whole area of social life of the economy where the party had no foothold. Uh, So the huge growth of the private sector back during the Maoist era, um, you know, workplaces, factories, schools, hospitals, villages, et cetera, workplace were an, these were the arena where the party reached out to people through party committees, through small study groups or so-called small groups that everybody had to be a part of where they would learn about party ideology and policies. So it became a problem when you get, you know, most people are living their lives, uh, if they work in the private sector, they have no interaction, very little interaction with the Communist Party nowadays. And that's especially so because um, housing has is now allocated according to market forces. So you don't live at your work unit. And so one thing the party has done in the last decade or so is it's been on this, Uh, goal to build up party institutions inside private firms. So today in China, Walmart, Intel, any, any, not any, but they're trying to expand this. But these companies and other foreign companies have party cells within them. Uh, And so if there's a certain number of party members, they're required to form a party cell and And this is how the party is trying to maintain its foothold in the private sector where a lot of people live their lives.
0: So it sounds like, uh, you know, back to my earlier comment, uh, things sort of getting out of control of the party leadership. They saw this private sector growing where there wasn't a party presence, and their reaction is to now say we're going to implant party institutions into that private sector. Exactly. would that I mean, in, in the United States? I think mean, many sort of uh, economists, uh, particularly conservatives, would say why that uh, party interference is going to undermine efficiency or under, undermine undermine uh, the economy. Are, are there concerns like that if the party is, uh, you know, setting up a uh, a, a study group inside of Walmart?
1: Um, there are concerns, but what's happened is, you know, a lot of people nowadays join the party because they see it as a route to advancement. And so some of these parties in these big, you know, foreign firms or domestic Chinese private firms, some of them act almost like recruiting agencies or they, they facilitate social engagement, networking activities, um, a, a good friend of mine, Professor Patricia Thornton, who's uh, at, at the University of Oxford, um, she has written about this, and, and she noted that you know the Communist Party uh, in in some communities and near Shanghai has organize these big events for white-collar workers including massive sort of um, you know uh, blind dating events and pillow fights and who move my cheese network events and various types of the business book from a decade ago sort of things that don't seem connected at all to communism but what they're aimed at doing is, facilitating white-collar workers knowledge workers educated workers connections to the party itself and getting them to identify it mm-hmm. with it so it's it's not clear how much communism is being promoted but the party itself is is promoting it, yeah. promoting, promoting
0: Sound, it sounds itself. kind of like the Rotary club on steroids
1: yeah uh, oh yeah all
0: this uh, yeah. social networking and uh, uh, they must have nice dinners with
1: oh i'm sure spe- well,
0: speakers giving they did boring... until
1: until uh, xi jinping's um uh, anti-corruption crackdown oh, so okay.
0: well uh, speaking of uh, uh, xi jinping uh, the president of china uh, news reports suggest that he's expanded his power uh, much to much greater degree than his uh, predecessors uh, uh, to what extent is that the case and and what do you see as the implications for china as President Xi uh, perhaps uh, taking another turn uh, in, in the direction of Chinese politics.
1: Um, It's absolutely correct that Xi Jinping has expanded his power far beyond what most of his predecessors exercised. Um, China's constitution was changed last year, actually, to allow Xi to serve as president for more than two terms. So for the last several decades and several successive leaders, leaders have been only allowed to serve for two terms. Um, But Xi now has the potential to be, quote, president for life. Uh, Now, importantly, that The Communist Party does not subject itself to the rule of law. It is above the Constitution and above the law. So this change to the Constitution really reflects decisions that were made at the top of the party itself. Um, She has used this broad anti-corruption campaign I mentioned to really neutralize and jail his rival's and to assert his authority over the whole party-state apparatus um, in general. Uh, in addition, so-called Xi Jinping thought has been enshrined in the Constitution, and now students, party members, uh, workers at state-owned factories, they have to study Xi's political philosophy. Um, the elevation of Xi Jinping thought is part of this effort to create a Xi cult of personality, uh, and his image and his person are promoted Uh, in ways not seen since the era of Mao Zedong, although not quite to that extent. Um, You know, Xi Jinping is not Mao, though. Uh, Interestingly, the current seven-member standing committee of the Politburo, which is the most powerful uh, entity in China, the most powerful body, uh, includes several people who were not Xi's own protégés, but are aligned with Hu Jintao and Jiang Zemin, who were two previous Chinese leaders, and so this shows that she still needs the support of powerful people and factions within the party, uh, but it, but he certainly has you know uh, expanded his power beyond what those previous lo- uh, leaders exercised.
0: Well, this could be a very delicate moment. I mean, he seems to be consolidating power, uh, but I mean, obviously, if I were in the Chinese elite, I would be maybe a little nervous and wondering. Uh, should I uh, line up behind uh, President Xi, or uh, should we maybe consider ways to rein him in? I mean, obviously, the politics is a competitive game. Uh, are there some perhaps uh, pitfall falls uh, in the future, some some obstacles that he might uh, come up against uh, if he's trying to basically consolidate his personal power?
1: There have actually been expressions of dissent. Uh, and criticism of of this power grab uh, by scholars in China, um, public pronouncements, public uh, speeches, discussion of you know centralizing power and authoritarianism and totalitarianism. Um, you know, I think she's uh, main uh, vulnerability is has to do with the economy. Uh, slowing growth um, is a problem since the regime's legitimacy is really tied to its ability to generate increases in the standard of living. Um, so, you know, I think going forward, what happens in the economy is is really going to affect Xi and, and his power and people's support for him.
0: Gee, that sounds like American politics. Oh, yeah. That is the <laughs> That the popularity of the president is tied to the uh, growth of the economy. Uh, so you're saying it's pretty much the same in China?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, it's similar but different in that you know now that she can potentially serve uh, as president, uh, you know, indefinitely. Uh, it means that the the procedures for sort of smooth succession, institutionalized processes for succession, have been kind of done away with. So, so one of the the Things that occurred in the post Mao era, because politics was so informal and so personalized under Mao, that Deng and his successors and the party as a whole adopted still informal, but nevertheless institutionalized procedures and and understandings and then eventually constitutional provisions Mm -hmm. for limits on terms for the smooth uh, transfer of power, although again a lot of it remains informal and driven by factions, but um, but yeah, you know, at least in the United States we have elections. We even have you know impeachment as a constitutional uh, you know a procedure where it is you know called for. Um, but and China really lacks those things, so that's that's a potential concern.
0: Yeah, but they still seem to have their their own kind of norms they've developed over the years. But it's those norms.
1: She has broken those norms. Yeah,
0: definitely. Because there is a lot of concern in Western democracies now that norms are being uh, broken, yes. and, and that that might lead to some kind of authoritarianism. So it's something kind of parallels yes. happening there in a kind of kind of odd way. Uh, well, uh, well, let's talk more about uh, a weakening economy. You said this could have serious effect on on she's hold on power. If yeah, I suppose if it gets bad enough. Uh, What is going on with the economy? Uh, Is it weakening? Uh, Why is it weakening? And what are the implications for the world economy if if China has maybe a major uh, recession or something?
1: Um, Well, first thing to note is that for several decades, the Chinese economy grew at a rate of about 9% a year, Mm -hmm. which is really phenomenal. Uh, That economy has has slowed, and slowed meaning it's only growing around 6% a year. you know, According to Chinese official statistics, there are other economists that estimate that it's actually slowed much more than that. Yeah, the importance for, is also is that the rate is slowing. So it,
0: yeah, for, for comparison, in the United States, if we have a 3% growth rate, that's considered that's huge, really good. Yeah. 4% would be like fantastic. So 6%, it is, isn't even hardly imagined in our yeah.
1: economy. And, and the fact that there is slowing growth is not inherently, it doesn't mean necessarily that there's an economic problem. It's also a sign of a maturing economy and that labor costs actually are uh, cheaper elsewhere Vietnam Cambodia places like that so so it's not entirely a, a negative story but it is a worry uh, for the government so so slowing growth is a problem just because the regime's legitimacy is so tied to that um, another problem is that a lot of growth uh, has been fueled by debt that is by loans issued by state-owned banks a lot of this has to do with like real estate speculation and development a lot driven by local like cities and and municipalities and provinces. So this is both at the national and the local levels. Um, Government banks have a lot of bad loans on the books, and there are many unprofitable, what are called zombie companies, that is, companies propped up by government lending in the state sector. Um, And so the government knows the risks of debt-fueled growth, but the alternative, which is very slow growth or no growth, Is just politically unpalatable, Um, and the IMF has warned that China's growing debt could generate a financial crisis within the country. Um, Another worry is uh, economic equality, inequality, I should say. Uh, This is a real problem for the regime. Chinese society today is one of the most unequal in the world. Uh, Chinese economists report that the country's Gini coefficient, which is a measure of economic inequality. Is around 0.6, and the Gini coefficient is a zero to one scale. Uh, 0.6 is very high, and this tells us that wealth and income are distributed very unequally, uh, extremely so actually. Uh, and just for comparison, the Gini coefficient in the U.S. is around 0.4, uh, and the U.S. is the most unequal of the advanced industrial countries. So that you know, so China is a more unequal country than the U.S. Um, In China, a lot of this is regional, so people in eastern coastal provinces are much better off than people in the interior and especially the west. And um, urban residents are much more affluent than rural people. But the sense of being left behind and taken advantage of by corrupt officials really underpin a lot of rural unrest. Mm -hmm.
0: Is that what's behind Xi's anti-corruption campaign? Is that an attempt to uh, maybe mollify people's worries about being left behind, that, uh, that the president's going after corrupt people who may be producing that inequality.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That that I mean, this is a kind of populist move on the part of Xi to go after corrupt officials. The the party leaders, I mean, people at the top are extremely corrupt. And and the thing is, if if you're in the leaders' faction, you're probably safe from any corruption crackdown. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, that China's leaders are fantastically wealthy, uh, you know, ludicrously so. Um, but, uh, you know, corruption has the potential to really undermine people's trust in government at the national level. It already affects it at the local level. And, you know, most people, their, their interactions with the state happen in their towns, in their cities, and, and that's where they see, you know, abuses of zoning and, and land grabs and things like that. So this anti-corruption drive is an effort by the top leadership, or she himself, to, Make the Communist Party make make Beijing appear responsive to the concerns of ordinary people. Mm-hmm.
0: Is are there any policies that uh, seriously address this economic inequality? Though, I mean, you're you're describing what might just be kind of symbolic, uh, you know, may, looking like we're going after corrupt people, but it's not really going to have an impact. Or, or ha- is the leadership trying to develop policies that will try to uh, Genuinely solve the problem.
1: Yeah, I mean the the Beijing has created policies whereby more affluent eastern coastal provinces sort of adopt interior provinces and you know uh, focus their own investment and development on those provinces. Uh, China's open up the West campaign, uh, which has been around for over a decade or about a decade, is a, an effort to really pour investment. Uh, into the west to build infrastructure to connect poor western provinces with uh this the han heart the han heartland um and to allocate resources you know more widely. Uh, one of the problems, though, is that this is actually fueling uh, you know discontent because oftentimes the people who benefit from these investments in the West are Han Chinese who live in the West or who move out there for job opportunities, and they don't necessarily go to the local people. Mm-hmm. So, um, in some cases, it's in some cases it's working uh, better. Um, And, you know, there are other policies in place and have been to deal with uh, rural poverty. So about I forget how many years ago, I say 20 years ago, not quite 20 years ago, um, 18 years ago, that the government basically abolished uh, taxes on agriculture at the, you know, so farmers don't have Mm -hmm. to pay agricultural taxes anymore, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, just as a way of lifting of uh, relieving farmers of the, you know, tax burdens, but also eliminating uh, one avenue uh, by which local officials take advantage of farmers, but this ability to levy taxes.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, we probably need to bring up at this point uh, Trump's trade policies, Okay, <laughs> his hostility towards China. Uh, to what extent uh, is uh, sort of trade, uh, Trump's characterization of China as taking advantage of the United States, as, as having trade policies that uh, are unfair? Uh, to what extent is that uh, the, the case? Uh, But more importantly, uh, what's likely to happen with these uh, this conflict over trade between the U.S. and China?
1: Um, I would say that Trump and his economic advisors are right to regard China warily when it comes to trade, uh, especially around issues of technology transfer, government subsidies to industry uh, and intellectual property rights. Um, Trump's tough talk and willingness to use tariffs, even his unpredictability, uh, may get China to agree to some changes. We'll find out probably in a few weeks, um, as currently the U.S. and China are discussing these issues. Uh, but Trump himself really expresses a kind of simplistic and often erroneous view of trade with China. It's not just Trump. It's also some of his advisors, like Peter Navarro and uh, Robert Lighthizer. Um, uh, Trump has called China a currency manipulator, which was actually true eight or 10 or 15 years ago, meaning it was artificially keeping the value of its currency low in order to make its exports really cheap. But in recent years, the Chinese government has been trying to prop up the value of the, the UN, the currency. And Trump actually doesn't use that phrase so much anymore, maybe at rallies. Uh, so maybe his advisors are keeping him on message a bit better. Um, but the fact that manufacturing supply chains today are global, really complicates any effort to, quote unquote, protect US producers with tariffs. Um, a lot of manufacturing in the United States uses components that come from China uh, and you know uh, and Chinese producers also rely on American goods in their manufacturing processes. So just this morning I was reading The Wall Street Journal and it has a story about how slowing growth in China is uh, affecting negatively affecting American forklift battery producers. you know I mean I never really thought about companies producing batteries for forklifts. Um, So tariffs have hurt many American firms, both exporters and importers. And of course, China is a major purchaser of American soybeans and other commodities. So uh, retaliatory tariffs from China have hurt American farmers, who uh, really have been one of Trump's key constituencies. So uh, another interesting thing is that the U.S. trade deficit with China is higher now than it was before tariffs were imposed. Um, given what I just said about the political importance of the state sector to the regime, that they see this as necessary for their authority and for stability. I think it's unlikely that China will stop subsidizing state-owned firms, which is a form of unfair competition. You know, if the government is propping up certain firms and get, helping right. them run in the red, that's, that is unfair. Um, uh, as to whether Trump will be more successful than Obama in pressuring China to stop ripping off, uh, patented U.S. technologies, you know, intellectual property theft, I I simply don't know. Um, Talks with China may just produce an outcome similar to that of the denuclearization talks with North Korea. So they may reach some vague agreement. It'll be announced. There'll be photo ops. Trump will declare victory. And China will go right back to doing what it was doing, much like North Korea has in building its nuclear arsenal. Mm -hmm. What it
0: looks like here, I mean, the dilemma for the United States is that uh, our economies are so interconnected now that there's really uh, very little room to maneuver to uh, pressure China to to change its ways. That that anything we, we're going to do is probably going to hurt the American economy as much as the Chinese economy, vice versa.
1: Yeah, I don't, I don't know um, if I wouldn't say there there are no avenues for doing this, but one of the challenges is that. You know, the, the government has to somehow get American firms on board, too, or, you know, basically make it clear that American firms are going to have mm-hmm. to deal with these problems. So, uh you know, maybe suffer some losses or some limitations. Uh, you know, I mean, there are other issues, too. You know, does this global interconnection mean that we have no leverage in the realm of human rights now? Uh, which I think is a real problem. in mm-hmm. um, you know, our ability to induce governments like China to not violate the human rights of its subjects.
0: So, mm. well, that's a whole other area of discussion—the human rights record in China. Um, before we get to that, though, uh, what about China's a geopolitical rival? Uh, military rivalry is—is is that uh, something that we should expect in the future?
1: Um, China is absolutely a major geopolitical and military rival to the US. Uh, I think relations will continue to be rocky, increasingly so, uh, partly because of Xi Jinping's own very expansionist foreign policy. She's much more ambitious than his predecessors, than Deng Xiaoping or Jiang Zemin or Hu Jintao. Um, uh, previous leaders followed Deng Xiaoping's dictum to, quote, bide and hide, which is bide their time while hiding China's capabilities. In contrast, um, you know, Xi is really trying to push China onto the world stage and assert a dominant role. Uh, in, in the fall of 2017, Xi Jinping gave a speech to the party leadership in which he said that it was time for China to, as he put it, take center stage in the world. And in that speech, she described China as standing tall and firm in the East and he said that China's political and economic model offers a new choice for the developing world, suggesting that the China model could be exported and um, you know implemented elsewhere. And you know these statements are, I think, remarkable. Um, under Xi Jinping's predecessors, China really accommodated itself to many of the norms and rules of the post World War II international order, breaking many of them, but at the same time, sort of working within. The kind of constraints and and international alliances, organizations, agreements, including the WTO, for instance. Um, And of course, the U.S. helped to create and then dominated this international order. So she is trying to change the rules of the game, sort of. And uh, for better or for worse, I think he's helped in this by Trump, who has done things to weaken the international order and, and really diminish America's role in it. Um, one area of contention is the South China Sea. China is trying to assert control there by building military outposts on small reefs in this region. For decades, the major naval power in Asia, Asia the dominant naval power in Asia was the United States. Uh, so the United States' own view of Asian waters as iron turf is part of the issue here. Um, already there have been confrontations in the South China Sea. So. Just last fall, a Chinese warship chased after and nearly collided with the US, USS Decatur. Uh, so more confrontations in the future with worse outcomes are, I think, likely.
0: Yeah, I, I just read in the New York Times this morning, a, a Chinese official uh, complaining about the American uh, naval presence. In the South China Sea, saying, uh, "What would you think if uh, we had that same president presence in the Caribbean? Um, America would be, be going crazy." If uh, uh, so, he was trying to make an, an analogy there. So it's, it's it's very interesting. And I'd say
1: he has a point. Too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he does.
0: Uh, and and one wonders if you know, given Trump's uh, uh, re- reluctance to. Uh, uh, have American troops abroad talking about bringing troops back from the Middle East uh, whether or not there is some prospect uh, one has to wonder the extent to which Americans are going to be willing to be the dominant naval power you know in Asia uh, how how far are we willing to go to to confront China and that, that's
1: an excellent point or question <laughs> yeah
0: uh, so, I mean, you mentioned a minute ago that Pre- President Xi uh, talked about the, the Chinese model and trying to export it. I would think that, given the success of the Chinese co- economy, whatever you, one might think of China's uh, political system or human rights record, uh, that might be attractive around the world. Is, is that part of what's going on with the Silk, Silk Road project? Is that an attempt to sort of carry the Chinese model to other countries?
1: Um. Uh, it's not, it's not really an effort to carry the Chinese model in terms of governance to other countries. With the, the Silk Road project, it's called the Belt and Road Initiative, or sometimes called One Belt, One Road. Uh, and it's basically a huge infrastructure project. Uh, China has contracted with a whole bunch of countries from Sri Lanka to Kazakhstan to Kenya, Ethiopia, Belarus, Indonesia, and so on. To basically build land and maritime transportation and communication links. Uh, so roads, ports, 5G networks, other kinds of, uh, you know, electrical grids, uh, things like that. Um, this is definitely part of Xi Jinping's effort to, you know, assert China's presence in the rural, world, to, to expand China's access to and influence throughout Asia and even into Africa and Europe. Um, it's a potential windfall for Chinese construction firms, especially state-owned firms, uh, if they win Belt and Road contracts, um, and, and this could certainly be helpful given the slowdown in China's economy. Uh, but the Belt and Road is is also creating huge opportunities for corruption, not just by Chinese officials, but by officials mm-hmm. in Kazakhstan and other countries. So, the, you know, she has really pushed the Belt and Road; it's it's his signature project, but it could end up. If it isn't already a huge boondoggle.
0: Okay, in the, in the time we have left, I, I'd like to turn to your own specialty in religion and, and politics, which I mean obviously is is directly related to human rights issues. Uh, what is the status of religion in China today, and, uh, do, what do you, and what's the attitude of the regime towards religious groups?
1: Well, uh, just for some background, religion was almost completely suppressed during the Mao era. And there were certain periods like the Cultural Revolution where it was totally suppressed, uh, driven underground. Uh, Mao himself became a sort of godlike figure uh, uh, of cultic, you know, adoration. Um, And the reforms that Deng Xiaoping kicked off that, you know, did focus on the economy, these also relaxed the state's control over religion. So beginning uh, around 1979, there was this huge upsurge in religious life. Mosques, temples, churches, and other uh, entities were rebuilt, expanded. Uh, People started reopening religious schools. And a lot of this was actually supported or has been supported and even subsidized by China's Religious Affairs Bureau. Um, But religion is still contained uh, and has been during this entire time. You can't just go out on the street and start preaching about Jesus, or set up your own church. And religious organizations need state approval. Uh, religious expression and activity can only take place, or is only supposed to take place, within certain parameters. Uh, and you know, not that it doesn't occur outside those parameters. And there's, in particular, Protestant Christianity has really exploded in China. Uh, and, and a lot of these, a lot of the churches that have um, formed are are so-called house churches. They're not official churches. Um, sometimes they're cracked down on, but you know, the government actually can't crack down on all the activity that's taking place. So there's a huge sort of informal uh, Protestant sector. And um, uh, some, some scholars predict that China will soon be the largest Christian nation in, in Asia, wow. maybe even in the world. Um, now, my research examines a byproduct of religious revival, my current project anyway, uh, which is faith-based charity. Uh, and, and really, I mean, like religious NGOs, religious philanthropic groups, um, as well as informal charitable behavior by uh, religious adherents. And one thing I'm really interested in is how charity organizations, which are not registered religious entities, nevertheless make it possible for uh, believers to practice their religion, to express religion in spaces and activities that are not technically religious, um, and, and I use the term repurposing that that essentially religious adherents have repurposed the NGO or repurposed social organizations and transform them into religious organizations uh, without, you know, not officially, though. It's kind of a stealth transformation. Um, and another thing I argue is that official support for religious charity, which there has been a lot of, uh, is a kind of tacit acceptance Of that religion has a role to play, an expanded role to play in Chinese society. Um, I should say that really in the last six months or so, I've become more pessimistic. Uh, She has really tightened control over religion. Uh, The regime is demanding that the so-called foreign religions like Christianity and Catholicism and Islam must Sinicize, which you know Chineseify, which basically means they have to submit to the communist party and really make that clear that they submit to the communist party
0: But again it seems that the the, the expansion of religion must be connected to the creation of this sort of private sphere uh, in, in the market uh, uh, and and uh, that is perhaps a consequence that is makes the party uncomfortable because particularly with religion you're, you're really talking about conscience and the way people view the world uh, which could be a real threat to the chinese party dominance absolutely
1: and they see it that way Mm -hmm. Uh, in fact i think i mean this this real crackdown on religion in general especially on christianity on i mean there's been a move mainly in zhejiang province which is in the east whereby all these you know a number of churches have been torn down but uh many churches or christian churches have these gigantic neon crosses on the top and these crosses have been lopped off and 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 Mm -hmm. Christians see this as an assault on their religion, although they are still allowed to go to church and practice. But I think the government really is worried about this, uh, what they see as an intrusion of Christianity into what is a ought to be a secular atheist society. Um, one of the things that's really worried the government is that more and more party members have turned towards religion, and mm-hmm. so in recent years Xi Jinping has reasserted, reiterated that it is forbidden for party members to believe in religion. Uh, Even if they're from Muslim minorities, they can't believe in Islam uh, or from Buddhist minorities. They can't believe in Buddhism or whatever. Um, And it is forbidden for them to participate in religious activities. So he's really trying to, uh, you know, draw a hard line between what party members can do and believe and, and, you know, religion. Um, So, yeah, so I do think that they, they're very concerned about this. Um, I just want to say a little bit about the, about Islam, uh, as I said, government is trying to synthesize Christianity or demanding that Christians synthesize themselves. Um, China has a a number of, actually they have 10 officially recognized so-called minority nationalities, ethnic groups that are largely Muslim or almost entirely Muslim. Uh, and, and Muslims can be found all over China. Uh, and again, Islam is one of the officially supported, officially recognized religions. And, and so there are lots of places in China where it, Islam is doing okay. But the government is waging a really brutal crackdown on Islam and, and on Muslims in Western China, uh, mainly the northwestern province of Xinjiang. Uh, and in Xinjiang, up to one million Muslims, mostly ethnic Uyghurs, are being held in detention camps which are basically concentration camps where they are undergoing training, re-education, uh, made to learn and sing patriotic songs and, and uh, you know basically renounce Islam. What the government is really doing, in my view, is is cultural genocide and should be more widely condemned. Um, another problem, China's growing capabilities in AI and artificial intelligence, really give the government tremendous repressive capacity and that is something that worries Mm me
0: so uh the future of religion in china might be a little uh difficult uh yes the the party's probably not going to allow
1: i don't uh, think the government will succeed in the long run but you know
0: it's right the appeal is there uh some conservative catholics have criticized pope francis for evidently negotiating with the chinese government about the role of the catholic church uh, is, is that a problem, or um, do you think that criticism justified?
1: Um, I th- I understand why conservative Catholics would be worried about that, or any Catholic would be worried about it. Um, but I mean, some some. People, I think, take too hard a line with regard to the the Roman Catholic Church in China. Um, You know, the Chinese state does recognize Catholicism, but it officially recognizes Chinese Catholicism, which, in their view, is or ought to be separate from the Roman Catholic Church. Um, So in a way, there are two Catholic churches in China. There's the official Catholic church, the Chinese Catholic church, and then there's the unapproved underground church and members of this underground church, you know, long for a long time viewed themselves as loyal to Rome. You know, uh, it wasn't that members of the above ground church, the open churches is called uh, repudiated Rome. They were just doing what they had to do to to worship openly. And uh for nearly all Catholic believers in China, there really is no difference that they see themselves as part of the Roman Catholic Church even if they worship at uh, official Chinese Catholic churches and this mm-hmm. goes for priests too and bishops that mm-hmm. in fact some priests are uh, they are ordained Bishop I should say bishops even some bishops are ordained bishops of the Roman Catholic Church as well as bishops within um, the the Chinese Catholic Church and and you know, under actually Benedict, I've, Benedict made a lot of uh, moves towards rapprochement with the Chinese government. I mean, he's very conser- You know, was a very conservative pope, but he actually extended uh, an olive branch of sorts, or, or made you know concessions to the Chinese regime in terms of authority over mm-hmm. um, bishops and and things like that. Uh, and in return, I mean, basically the, the the government of China sort of agreed that the people they put forward to be bishops within the Chinese Catholic church will be secretly approved by, that will be acknowledged by and large by Rome. Now There still are bishops being approved in China that Rome does not approve of, but many of the newly approved bishops have been approved by China, uh, by, sorry, by the Vatican. Um, uh, but again, I, I just re- want to really stress that Catholics in China see themselves as Catholics and and, you know, like, You know, I went over there They're like, oh, are you Catholic? And they're very excited to meet a foreign Catholic and and sort of treated me like I was an insider, which is really interesting when I was doing fieldwork on them, because I was an insider. I wasn't an outsider, you know, which you don't usually get as a a Caucasian person from America in China. Um, You know, one of the problems for the Roman Catholic Church derives from the fact that the at least with regard to China derives from the fact that the Vatican is a sovereign state. And the Vatican, as a sovereign state, recognizes the Republic of China, which is the government on Taiwan. And it doesn't recognize the People's Republic of China, which is the government on the mainland. And Beijing does, you know, if you recognize the Republic of China, then you're, you know, you're persona non grata to Beijing. And Beijing is basically trying to push the Vatican to recognize officially the People's Republic of China, uh, normalization, as they call it. Um, And also, China sees Vatican efforts to to control bishops and even diocesan boundaries as foreign meddling in domestic Chinese affairs. And and given the historical role of missionaries in Western imperialism, uh, I think the regime's hostility is kind of understandable.
0: Well, that's very interesting. Well, thanks very much, Susan. Uh, We covered a lot of territory here, uh, a a topic that probably deserves a lot more time than we were able to give it. Uh, But thanks a lot for... uh, being on behind, Beyond Your News Feed, I certainly learned a lot about China uh, this this morning. Uh, and thanks again to uh, Chris Judge for providing production assistance.
1: Yes, thank you very and, much.
0: And to Joe Carr of the Department of Marketing and Communications for his continued support. And special thought thanks to our listeners. Uh, and I ask you to subscribe to Beyond Your News Feed. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Uh, thanks very much.